So if you weren't with us last week, we started this brand new conversation, and there's just a couple things that it's really important to me that would be clear throughout this series, and the first is, and we talked about this last week, is I, like many of you, am so grateful to live in this current cultural moment. I'm grateful that we live in an age of science where we have all of this incredible brain research and understanding through neuroplasticity, and it just seemed even they would admit we're just getting started. I'm grateful for those of you who are therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, grateful that we have all these different tools to help us with our mental game. So when we say back to the basics, in no way is there any intent to imply that we think these current tools aren't useful or are even unnecessary. What we are trying to do is just recognize that there's a human tendency, and that is when we focus on one set of things, we tend to forget about another set of things. And so what we're trying to explore in this series is what if, in addition to all these other things, there's maybe more simple things that we're forgetting. You know, things like sleep hygiene and nutrition and exercise, things like how, what it is that we meditate on and how we engage in t- with technology and to what extent is community and relationship a part of our whole mental scope. So what we're trying to do, and thus the kind of kids breaking eggs, is go, okay, so what are some of the more basic things? Not to replace therapists or therapy or the sciences, but just to pay attention to some things that it feels to me like are all too easily forgotten. You know, last week, I, part of what I said was that when I listen to the way our culture is speaking about mental health, it leaves me with this impression that if we're not careful what we're conveying, especially to our kids, is that if there's something not right about you mentally, that that's unique, and therefore you should get help. And it's not the help that in any way we're trying to push against, it's the suggestion that some of us have mental struggles and others of us don't. Sure, genetics, family of origin, trauma, there's myriad things that mean that we're all playing with a different set of cards, but what if, like what if the mental game has always been difficult? What if it's always been hard to be a human in our own heads? In fact, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, she made an observation in one of her books that I think is brilliant, where she said that the average human can go three weeks without food, and three days without water, and three minutes without oxygen, but, but can't go three seconds without a thought. And to me, that points back to kind of the scope of Scripture and the way, the, 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 the faith that some of us are a part of. And if you're not, that's great. We're glad that you're here and exploring it. But it points back to these disciplines which understand that like what we think matters. And, and Paul even uses phrases like taking every thought captive. So the question we asked last week is like, what if thinking isn't optional? Which is to say like, what if numbing isn't the best solution? But what if actually paying attention to how we think and what we're thinking really could change our mental game? And last week we looked at Romans 12 where Paul, uh, he says we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is something we're going to explore in, a, with, in an interview here in a few weeks with, with an expert from this cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint. But, but also he closes, after saying like we're all invited to have this renewed mind, he closes by talking over and over and over again about the person who puts others' interests above their own. And I suppose the question that I was trying to ask last week is, is is what if self-centeredness, self-absorption, egotism, even things that border on narcissism, what if if it's part of our current cultural malaise? That in our hyper-independence and and hyper-individualism, we're so focused on self that the the ancients would say, wait a minute, that's fundamentally not a healthy way to live. 
There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century, as far as I understand. He said, humility, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So that's where we left off last week, and I want to ask another question this morning, but first a preliminary question, and it's this. Who are your heroes? I mean, have you thought recently about who, who is it that you admire? I mean, are, are, are they local? Are, are they national and international? Are they athletes? Like what, what, because really what I'm trying to get at here is in, in your scope, what makes somebody a hero? Like what, what is it? Is it, is it appearance? The, their level of sexual attractiveness? Is it their power, their success? Is it tied to their ability to hit a baseball or spike a volleyball, play an instrument? Like what, what makes a hero a hero? Which another way to come at this is the opposite. Who are your anti-heroes? <laughs> although I will say that I think Monday night made it clear that the Broncos' greatest foe is not the Raiders, it might be themselves. But like what makes, what makes an anti-hero? I mean, culturally, frankly, this is something we've been exploring for a couple of years. Like, what fundamentally makes up a person that you don't like, an, an enemy? And again, is it, a, is it a political thing? Is it a social thing? Is it an ethnic thing? What, what, what is it? And that would lead us then to this other question of who are the biblical heroes? And I don't really like that word biblical, but for lack of a better term, like, within the scope of Christian tradition and history and, and the text... Who are the heroes? I mean, I would pose a few, Abraham and Sarah. I think a great example. But then you go like, so what makes them a great example? Because it can't be moral perfection because fittingly and ironically, even the text records them as morally imperfect people, which is somewhat refreshing. But then why, why are they heroes or, or Moses? Even if you're not a person who associates with Christian faith, it's likely you know of Moses, which would kind of make an argument for he, he's been a hero for, for, for a long time. What about him makes him a hero? Because he's also a murderer to such an extent that when he finally went to go lead the Exodus, God almost killed him. Like it's this weird story in, in the story. So, so why is Moses a hero or, or Esther? If you've not sat with that story for a while, this summer I was trying to challenge myself to just not just read the Bible like line by line and word by word, but to appreciate for its story. And there was this one morning sitting out on our patio where I just read the book of Esther. It probably takes 20 minutes. It's a brilliant story. It's odd because God is never mentioned in the story, but his fingerprints are all over the story. But Esther, if you know the story of Queen Esther, like she's clearly a hero, but Why? Like, what makes a biblical hero a hero? And, and I think the question I'm really trying to get at here is, like, my heroes growing up were Ozzie Smith and John Elway. John Elway for his teeth, and, <laughs> and Ozzie Smith for obvious reasons. The guy could play baseball. But what happens in our mental game if we don't grow up in who our heroes are? Like, what, what happens if, if we're 50-something people whose heroes are heroes because of the, the status that they have, the power that they have? And, it, and if we don't grow into more moral qualities, like, what does that do to our mental game? And if we do grow into moral qualities, which are the ones, which are the ones that are worth admiring? Back to the question, who, what's a biblical hero? Well, I'm not claiming to be the authority or to have an exhaustive list, but there's a couple things that stand out to me. One is self-giving love. Abraham and Sarah 
Moses, Esther. I'm grateful that the text records their faults. But one thing they're quite good at, every one of them actually left a place of luxury and power to accomplish less for themselves but more for others. It seems clear Abraham and Sarah were were powerful people when they left the land God called them from. Moses could have just hung out in in, in Egypt for the rest of his life. Esther, she had it going on with her life. They all sacrificed something. But here's this other one, and this is the one that I want to consider this morning as we think about mental health, and it's this idea of courage. Like all of them also have that quality going on, don't they? Which leads to this question, what if courage is a cardinal virtue? And here's what I'm trying to ask because I'm not a wordsmith and I can't claim to have scholarship around what makes, it, what makes courage courage, but it has something to do, it would seem, and here's what I'm really trying to mess with, is what if on some level to be a healthy human is to live with some mental and emotional discomfort? What if part of what we're conveying, if we're not careful, is the point at which you have said discomfort, you should numb it, you should run from it. Normal people don't have it. But what if real heroes, whether those in the Bible or in countless other places, what if part of their makeup is their ability to do things despite feeling, despite internal conflict? Now, what do I mean by this word cardinal? Because we talk about cardinal directions. I I went to Google. Cardinal comes from the Latin, it comes from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge, which is also kind of a beautiful picture, isn't it? Like, what if courage is one of a few things that if it goes away, the thing just doesn't work? Like, Like, imagine eliminating one of the hinges from your door some of you are like, I do. Every time my kids close the door, I imagine the hinge disappearing or one of them or, or, or your door like of your house. It just wouldn't work. What if courage is, 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 is that important? Now, here, here's where I think one of the more helpful moments for me as I was considering this and its place in the text was some of you might remember on Mother's Day, our friend Brian interviewed a handful of different women over two different gatherings. They all had great things to say. What gripped me in that experience and what I spent some time reflecting on the next morning as I was doing some writing was Kelly Sheridan. Some of you may know her. She attends the nine most of the time. She's this awesome teacher who's uh, taught at C.R. Anderson forever and ever and ever. Brilliant woman. But she shared, and this was so simple. She said there was two things she wanted her girls to know. One, God is with you. And two, she said, There will be times when life is hard, and in those times, I want them to know God is with them. And as I was reflecting on that, it just kind of exposed for me this, I think, immature tendency to operate on the assumption that I'm entitled to a life that's not difficult. Maybe that's because of the season that I live in, because now, maybe I'm just getting old, but as I pay attention to this window that I've grown up in, born in 1978, post the world wars in Vietnam, pre-COVID and all these other things, I'm starting to think maybe I've spent most of my adult life in this tiny sliver of time where one could actually live under the assumption that life was easy. And sure, my family of origin and and that I'm a white male, there's all these different things that would contribute to that. I get that's not every person who's lived in this sliver of time, but still, it's starting to feel clear like maybe that was this little tiny window But what if Kelly's on to something that to be human is to actually operate on the assumption that life will be hard? Which got me thinking about Richard Rohr. I don't always love Richard Rohr, but I I don't always love myself, so that's okay. But Richard Rohr, 
is this Catholic priest who often offers a lot of neat things to say, and he's observed for a long time that one of the things that other cultures were better at that ours isn't are these initiation rituals. He talks about the initiation rituals of primal people. And in there, he observes three things that these other cultures did more consistently, that they had a way of conveying to their kids who were becoming adults three ideas. One, life is hard. I don't know about you, but it feels like oftentimes cultural Christianity says the opposite. Like if you're doing faith right, life is easy. One, life is hard. Two, you will die. And three, life is not about you. And I just wonder, again, what if part of our cultural mental funk is that we're a part of this unique moment in time, many of us, who actually have the audacity to believe that we can, we can, we can push against these things. I referenced a podcast on the mind map from Bishop Barron where he interviewed a couple people and they were talking about several cultural things, but one of the things that stood out to me, it was in this same season, what was one of the, I think it was the man in the interview, he was asked about our cultural anxiety and what's going on, and again, he, he didn't have one answer to the issue, but he did say something that caught my attention. He said, I think maybe part of where we've gone wrong is we've failed to transition people from being children to being adults. And then he said something I'd never considered, but I found myself agreeing with. He said, when you're a child, you're entitled to safety. The whole world is kind of about you because you kind of won't live if the world isn't about you. And he said, but I wonder if part of our cultural issue is what we've failed to do is help one another transition by understanding there's a season in which life is no longer just primarily about your being safe. It's about you having a mission and a goal that's bigger than your safety. These all kind of contribute to this idea of what if, to the extent that we're trying to view life through the lens of scripture, there's this assumption that life will be hard, that you will die, and that life is not about you. And then you just start doing that Bible thing, especially if you've been around the text for a while, and start scanning verses. And there's some classic verses, like in Joshua chapter 1. This story uh, that's huge to Israel's history where, where Joshua, this leader, hears, I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Kind of sounds like Kelly, doesn't it? This assumption of difficulty and this belief that God is with. Or even Jesus, in John chapter 16, uh, he makes a statement that, I'm convinced you, you, you could, like lots of things, you could spend your life studying it because it feels like at times he contradicts himself so there's so many layers. I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. I'm a fan of peace. In this world you face persecu- persecution. Well, wait a minute. You want me to have peace or persecution, right? There's just like, make up your mind. But take courage. I've conquered the world. What's the message there? And to what extent is it a message of like, Life's going to be hard. Well, then I went to my Bible software, quite honestly, and just searched out the word courage. Because I'm not an expert on these things, but I know that oftentimes there, there's words that mean courage that aren't translated courage. And that's when I found this gem in my mind in 2 Corinthians I've never spent any time with, but it quickly struck me as so important that I've spent the summer memorizing the whole section. It's this brilliant, brilliant section. And I'm going to try to just touch on it verse by verse for a few minutes. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. The word heart there is courage. 
So this whole line of thinking that Paul's gonna walk us through is like, here's where my courage comes from. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. I mean, that, that is the Christian life right there, isn't it? It's the devotional life. There's this sense of a God who can, who can bring peace despite what's going on. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. I think one of the things we have to be very careful when we read this, in my opinion, well, it's not just mine, I think this is just objectively true, that there's a cultural Christianity that would say the message is about the physical life doesn't matter, so just hold on for heaven where you'll flit about with angels. And it's not what Paul's saying here. It's more clear to say he's talking about a physical existence that's more lasting than the one we're currently experiencing. But notice part of his whole, his, his, his whole premise for courage, the driver for his courage, is this understanding that this isn't it, that Jesus has conquered death. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but cannot be seen is eternal. So his whole thing is there's this courage that I have for if, the, and for, for if we know that the earthly tent, excuse me, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, watch the way he builds on the physical nature of life. And if ever there was question whether or not there, there's dualism in the text, this would be the one like, no, this is not what he's saying. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, and not just a building, something that's personal, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Like, I mostly hate camping because I'm like, why would I camp and sleep in a tent? I pay my mortgage. I have a house. (laughs) It's essentially what Paul is saying here is he's likening this physical existence to the tent and saying we look forward to something that's more physical and more permanent. For in this tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, go ahead to that next one, Donnie. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. So he's acknowledging that, that, that human sickness, that human sin, that evil has had this negative impact on culture and the whole culture is groaning. And then there's this comment about nakedness which is absolutely inexcusable in their culture and it has to do with resurrection and whether or not we're in embracing resurrection. For while we're still in this tent, so again, notice what he's trying to say is this world is actually the temporary version of physicality. For while we're still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. These counterintuitive contrasts, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Now, back to courage. Verse six, so we're always confident. It's the word courage. So we're always courageous. Why? Even though that we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse eight, again, yes, we do have confidence. Yes, we do have courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. There's a contrast there. And it's as hard for me as I would imagine it is for you. But for Paul, the fundamental goal is what? I think he says it in verse 9. 
Like we make our aim to please him. The Puritans uh, used to have this statement, we play our lives for an audience of one. The goal is not like that life is easy or comfortable. It's not just this, this kind of simplicity. It's this obedience, and it seems to speak to, therefore, how he finds his courage. Where do, so you could say to Paul, Paul, what gives you the right to be courageous? And his answer would be, in my opinion, the resurrection. Like, it's, it's, the, it's the early church going, well, you can kill me, but what does that accomplish? Like, death lost. I'll be alive. I, I, it was when I was exploring this idea of courage and cardinal virtue, I asked a friend who's a therapist, I said, uh, so how many sessions do you need with somebody before you can determine whether or not you can help them. And I was shocked at how, how quickly they answered and, and, and how confidently. You know what they said? One. And I said, well, that's interesting. So what are you determining in that one session? And I feel like th- they might have even taken it down to minutes within the session, but that might just be my own brain <clears throat> adding to the story. So what, it is, what is it that you need to determine in that session? And they said, I've got to figure out whether or not they're comfortable being uncomfortable. Because if they're not, then I can't help them. There's a guy named Kurt Thompson who's a psychiatrist, a very thoughtful, Christ-following person who's got a book called Anatomy of the Soul, which is the best book I've been able to find on kind of the 30,000-foot view of psychology. And the first several chapters are written from, he would argue, this uh, objective scientific place, but he is a Christ follower. And on the back end, he starts unpacking some of modern psychology in the, in the, through the lens of Christ. But in this chapter called The Mind of Christ, he makes this statement that I, that I think I agree with. I really don't like it if it's true, but it strikes me as right at the heart of what God was talking to Joshua about. Go ahead to that next slide, Donnie. He says, one... I forgot to fix my typo again. One, if not the primal sinful desire is the urge for instant reduction of distressing emotions. I think we all have to sit with that and decide whether or not we even agree with it. But to the extent to which it's true, it would beg this question, what if courage, the ability to do hard things, what if it's a cardinal virtue? I thought I was onto a new idea, and then finally I went to Google. What I didn't know was Plato actually talked about cardinal virtues, and courage was one of them. Next slide. Plato's four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, courage, and temperance. Which again, what's he saying? It's like he's saying, if you're going to be a human like this door, absent these things, life just won't work. Aristotle picked these ideas up. And then even the early church picked them up. Uh, Ambrose of Milan, who, who lived in the 300s, I think was the first one to start talking about the four cardinal Christian virtues. Augustine talks about this. Even Thomas Aquinas talked about the four cardinal virtues, which leaves me asking this question, what if, what if whatever the promises that come with Jesus are, They're not promises that mentally things will always be smooth and easy and simple. What if the whole Christian life, I think it's Bishop Barron that says every time God calls somebody, he sends them. And their sentness almost always implies difficulty. I mean, let's talk about being a classroom teacher. Or let's talk about being a police officer. Or let's talk about being a parent. What would happen 
if just our preconceived expectations for how we experience life weren't predicated on the idea that if you do everything just right, mentally, life will be simple and easy and clean. What would happen? Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16. Maybe I'll just end here because it just it strikes me as like so blunt. Next slide. He says, keep alert. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Maybe the question for you is like, what are the areas of life right now where God's, he's not calling you to guarantees. He's not calling you to like exit strategies. Like there's just no getting around that you're in a situation right now that absent courage, it's, you're not gonna get it done faithfully with him. What, what are some areas where God's just calling you to courage? And to a greater extent, how, how do we find a healthier balance between at times needing interventions from therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists and the myriad other things, and at times recognizing life is hard, you're gonna die, and it's fundamentally not about you. So we're gonna reflect on resurrection a little bit more. We're gonna give you a chance to take communion. If you've not done that with us, we loop row at a time. The band's gonna come up here and lead us through a song. I'd like to pray as they come up here and then Hannah will jump up and lead us through communion after the first song. God, as someone who I think would put myself at the very bottom of any kind of hierarchical list of courage, uh, just for all of us, God would ask for your help. Uh, that it's really easy to stand around and talk about how, how, how life is, it's inevitable that life would be hard. It's inevitable that circumstances would be hard. It's inevitable that we would personally experience uh, what it's like to live in a world that's just groaning for the final implementation of your restoration. Uh, God, I pray for friends here that uh, this, this isn't a hypothetical idea, like they're living it right now whether it's through their own physical health or their own mental, emotional game, whether it's through relationships or just the grief of transition and the unknowns. God, I pray that you'd lead us into being the kinds of people who, like we raise the bar on, on what, it, what it takes to be a hero in our scope, in our mental economy. Uh, that it's not just about affluence or appearance, uh, but that we have this deep admiration for people who do hard things. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.